All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for keeping these doors open, and thank you for bringing us back together for another night, uh, Tuesday nights moving forward. What a privilege that is. Uh, we should never take it for granted, Father, but rather realize that it's your love expressed through grace. That was most evidenced, of course, on a cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt against us, to make even an evening like this one a reality. Thank you so much. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, we're still midstream, uh, part 22 of the gospel, salvation and sanctification. Before I departed for Thanksgiving vacation with my family, the Spirit had me announce that obviously Tuesday evening classes would be resuming, and so here we are. But as with anything that goes on in this ministry, there's always a lesson to be learned. That lesson for all of you is what I have dubbed the Tuesday evening experiment, which in a nutshell put your faith to the test. Well, what would I do in the absence of a formal class? And that's between you and the Lord. It's not for me or anyone else to pass judgment on, but rather for you to reconcile with God the reality of your own faith. And that's not something that I'm even interested in doing, to be quite honest. I teach the Word of God, and the folks to your left and your right are family members, but that's none of their business, frankly. The capstone principle was this, the proof of your faith. Faith must be put to the test in order to consummate it. I taught um, at least one series on that a few years back, and that was pivotal on uh, 1 Peter 1.7, which has that Greek word, Dokimayan, which is the assayer's term, uh, the proof of your faith. Faithfulness is fruit of faith, but never a substitute for it. Even an unbeliever can be faithful in a religious context. And we looked at Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Also, a person's faith must be tested in order for their own confidence in it to be established. Otherwise, one never really knows. That's a good thing. In other words, to have your faith tested, like the Tuesday night experiment, is a good thing. Because it shows you, if you're humble, where you're at. And that's a very good thing. It's just like saying, you see my diamond ring? Or you see my, uh, my gold band right here? It's pure gold. Sure about that? Absolutely. Let's melt it. And it turns out to be tin. Right? That's what an assayer would do. It's a very good thing to understand where you stand. And that's why those terms in the Greek, uh, are actually used. So it's a very good thing to the humble person. To the arrogant, maybe not so. Maybe there's a knee-jerk reaction and they have a little problem. But again, that's between them and the Lord, not me. The practical distinction the Spirit made on the topic was this. For believers, salvation, deliverance, is a function of faith, not faithfulness. So you can go through the motions, in other words, Uh, you know, drum up all kinds of quote-unquote fruit and still not have faith and therefore not be delivered. And again, Hebrews 11.1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction 
of things not seen. Conversely, was this principle. Again, I'm drawing from a couple of weeks back now, a week and a half. Those who lack faith are not given a sense of assurance, but rather are shown that their so-called faith was, at best, faith in their own faithfulness, which is really human good. Jesus himself warned of so-called human faithfulness. Let me give you the message translation of that passage we read together a week and a half ago from Matthew 6. Remember, that's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Up here in the board is the message, 6.1. Be especially careful when you are trying to be good so that you don't make a performance out of it. It might be good theater, but God who made you won't be applauding. Verse 2 in the message. When you do something for someone else, don't call attention to yourself. You've seen them in action, I'm sure, play actors I call them, treating prayer meeting and street corner alike as a stage, acting compassionate as long as someone is watching, playing to the crowds, They get applause, true, but that's all they get. Verse 3 and 4. When you help someone out, don't think about how it looks. Just do it quietly and unobtrusively. That is the way your God, who conceived you in love, working behind the scenes, helps you out. Verse 5. And when you come before God, don't turn that into a theatrical production either. All these people making a regular show of their prayers, hoping for stardom. Do you think God sits in a box seat? Verse 6. Here's what I want you to do. Find a quiet, secluded place so you won't be tempted to role play before God. Just be there as simply and honestly as you can manage. The focus will shift from you to God, and you will begin to sense His grace. And then 7 and 8. The world is full of so-called prayer warriors who are prayer ignorant. They're full of formulas and programs and advice, peddling techniques for getting what you want from God Don't fall for that nonsense. This is your father you are dealing with, and he knows better than you what you need. With a God like this loving you, you can pray very simply. And that's very good words of advice, very good counsel. You don't have to be all, not to be silly, but fancy-smancy, right? You don't have to have all the right words You don't have to, you know, like before I left, we had that prayer vigil. You don't have to be well-spoken at all. You should just go before the throne of grace and say, you know what, if I'm not well-spoken, well, guess who made me that way? So he's going to be understanding. If you have literally seven words to vocabulary, use them. If you have 7,000, use them too. But God's not impressed because he's the same God who made you who gave you seven or seven thousand. So it's not about impressing God. It's not about certain language. It's not about doing things over and over to try to impress Him. God sees the heart. Isn't that what He's been telling us now for like two years? Taking us all the way back to the gospel proper? 
that it's about the heart? Of course, that was an excerpt from the Sermon on the Mount, which, interestingly, he follows up with some general root-like counsel in the same passage, things that speak to the heart. In 19 to 21, in the message up here on the board, same chapter, don't hoard treasure down here where it gets eaten by moths and corroded by rust or worse, stolen by burglars. Stockpile treasure in heaven where it's safe from moth and rust and burglars. It's obvious, isn't it? The place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and end up being. The place where your treasure is, is the place where you will most want to be and end up being. So if you really just are a self-absorbed person, you're going to end up with yourself at the end of all this. That's what you wanted, but it's going to be crummy. For most of us, it's fair to say that this very principle that Jesus was getting at is the basis of any good form of self-examination. In other words, where is my treasure? Where's your treasure? In other words, one must ask themselves the following practical question, and often, not just at salvation, what do I value most in this world? Stop right now. I'll take a drink of water. Ask yourself that question. Be totally honest. And be honest with yourself. Someone asks you, what do you value most in this world? If you say your cat or your dog, you got a problem. Or your hamster. Or whatever you got. Or your car or your job or your whatever. What do I value most in this world? If your heart, not your head, that is telling you to say the right thing, quote-unquote, if your heart leaps for Jesus Christ and no one or nothing else, then you are doing well and God is pleased. Romans 12, that's supposed to be 1 to 3. Again, if your heart, not your head, because your head's going to say, okay, say the right thing, you know, he's asking that question. Of course, oh, Jesus, that's totally Jesus. If your heart leaps for Jesus Christ, truly, and no one or nothing else, then you are doing well, and God is pleased. Romans 12, 1 to 3. It was interesting because that filling of the Spirit comment came in last minute. So as per my pre-class recap of what the filling of the Spirit means, in the Bible study we've been comparing Scripture on Scripture. And we noted that Colossians 3.16 says, Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That is something that is indicative of being filled. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. So if you are insistent on asking that nagging, sub-supernaturally generated question, How do I know I'm filled? then that's the short answer. Is the Word of God your focus? And are you obeying the Holy Spirit's conviction? If you answer yes, then you are filled. That's it. You don't need a protocol. There's nobody else that's going to tell you whether or not you're filled or following His commands. Um, That's an issue between you and God, the Holy Spirit. 
and God holds the person responsible for the per to what they know. To whom much is given, much is required. So if he gives you the word of God, then now you're responsible for it, which means he's going to use it to convict you. So when that conviction comes, and we also, I, sp I spent a whole lot of time on the good conscience, remember? The value of the conscience. When that conscience is convicted, all the conscience is there to do is distinguish between right and wrong. When that conscience is convicted and you go towards the Spirit, then you're controlled, following, filled with the Spirit. If you say, I got it, but I don't like that, I'm going this way, well then, what do you think? That's when you lose it. And when you're drunk, you don't really have a choice. They call, the Bible calls that dissipation. Okay? So that's the short answer. Go to Colossians. Not now. No, 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 no. You guys are so trained. That's awesome. Go to. It's like. Fingers. Let's do it. I was just. I should use a different language. If you get curious, then go to Colossians 3.16 to like 4.2. Do you remember that? from the, For those of you who went to the Bible study. Um, that's a good way to know. Is the word of God your focus? And are you obeying the Holy Spirit's conviction? If you answer yes, then you are filled. This is what it means to be filled and controlled by God the Holy Spirit. It's really about following His commands. And just a little bit of Theology 101. If it's a command in the Bible, then it involves free will. If it's a command in the Bible, then it involves something we call free will. So, if it's a command in the Bible and you choose to ignore that command, well, guess what? You're not being controlled by God the Holy Spirit because God the Holy Spirit's going to tell you to what? Obey the command. So it's not rocket science and you certainly don't need a protocol. Okay? So Theology 101, if it's a command in the Bible, then it involves free will. For example, we believers are commanded to Present, that's that Greek word parastemi. We've studied it multiple times in the past. We are commanded to present parastemi ourselves, all of us, obediently. We do this when we are filled. Go to Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. So if you want to know if you're filled, then understand that every command involves your free will. And if you know that command because you've been taught it, then God the Holy Spirit's going to tell you, you should be doing that or you shouldn't be doing that. And your good conscience or your conscience will be convicted, guaranteed. How that all happens mechanically in the supernatural realm, I don't know, I guess it could be even slightly different from person to person. Some people need a little bit more force. Some people need who knows what. I don't know. But I know what the Word says. It says it will happen if you're a believer. Romans 12.1 Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present. There's your command. You're commanded. Present. Peristemi. Present your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice. So if you're convicted and you know there's a time in your life, a place in your life, a circumstance in your life where you should be doing this very thing, I don't know, maybe it's a, a narrow thing. Maybe it's, you know... Do something for the church, or do something for your mother, or do something for your father, or do something for someone that you know that is in need. Whatever that thing is. 
and he's convicting you, this is how I want you to present yourself, parastemi. This is how I want to use you as an instrument of righteousness right now. And you know when the conviction comes. Don't act dumb, right? I don't know when it comes. I don't know. Give me a protocol, because I don't like this whole supernatural convicting thing, because it seems like I'm convicted all the time. Well, maybe you are. Maybe your lifestyle stinks. Maybe he's been convicting you for a long time, and you prefer the protocol because it made it easier. But we don't want to go down that route again. Know this, that if it's a command, then it involves your free will, which involves this whole chain of events. Good conscience, God the Holy Spirit, recalling the word. You want to call it doctrine, that's fine as well. Recalling some principle. And he says, I want you to do this. And look at this command. This is like one of the great commands in the New Testament. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. It's not even just specific. It's like all of you. I've taught you that. Acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. In other words, he wants all of you. Verse 2, and do not be conformed to this world. That's another command. In the negative, though, he's saying don't be conformed to the world. Do this, but don't do that. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. If the question is then, what do I value most in this world, then it's, fair, it's a fair corollary to state that whatever is controlling you most often is the answer to that question. Again, the question, what do I value most in this world? I think it's a fair corollary based on Scripture stating that whatever is controlling you most often is the answer to that question. For most people, it's self. And this is how we grow up in the spiritual life. For most people, even well-intentioned Christians, they don't understand how selfish they are. The Word of God has to reveal it to them. They don't understand how wretched they are without Him. And that's part of sanctification. Salvation is just the beginning. You don't realize how wretched you are. I mean, how often does that happen, right? You, you go, who knows, five, ten years down the road, and you think you're doing all well, and now it's a pow! God, the Holy Spirit, reveals something to you in Scripture, and you're like, oh, my word, I did not realize that that was wrong, or that I should have been doing that. But once He reveals it to you, now you know, and now He holds you responsible. So for most people, I think we mo- most of us will agree that it's self. For Paul, it was God the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 3. He says, For through the grace given to me, I say. I love that. Think about what he's saying. He says, listen, he's not just saying, I say. He says, through the grace given to me, I say. You see what he just did? He says, it's not even, listen. The only reason I'm even able to stand here and teach any of you, and any person, I suppose, any shepherd or anybody really ministering to anyone could say the same thing, it's by grace. But Paul was hyper aware of it, being the steward of it in the early church. For through the grace given to me, I say, to everyone among you not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think. 
but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith up here on the board. Through the grace given to me, I say, the essence of Paul's person was grace orientation. He always made a point of reminding his disciples of this simple fact. It's who he was, in other words. That's truly what a grace-oriented person is. They take no credit for anything. They're not even interested. That's not even what they value. Remember, the question on the table is, what do I value in this world? Paul valued Christ. He valued eternal life. He valued grace. He valued God's love. And he said, it's by these things that I say these other things. It's by these things, by the strength of my own conviction on these things, that I give you commands. 1 Corinthians 15.10 up here on the board, but by the grace of God I am what I am, so says Paul. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. So the question on the table lingers, what do I value most in this world? And be honest with yourself. One of the things that popped out of this past Sunday's message was that only God, now I need you to concentrate, only God can break the ties that bind us. I want you to think about the conversion process and the inherent state of man, the unsaved individual. They have a huge problem. So one of the things that popped out was that only God can break the ties that bind us. So let me explain. Consider the unbeliever whose greatest claim to faith is human-born, which is weakness incarnate. But nonetheless, they have faith in something and convictions, presumably. Up here on the board, this was something that came out in the lesson from Sunday, for me anyways, unbroken ties, unsaved man will remain in the condition in which he was born. That is, totally and integrally, with emphasis on integrally, that is totally and integrally tied to the domain of darkness. Let that sink in. In other words, they don't have a choice in the matter. They're incapable of extracting themselves from that thing. They wouldn't even know how. They wouldn't know how to start. They might have an idea of, well, I think if I get saved, then something's going to happen where I end up following Jesus. But they don't know how to extricate themselves from their condition. Does that make sense? There's no out. So it's a prison without doors, as far as they're concerned. It's literally a box that they cannot get out. That's the unsaved person's condition. They're totally and integrally, integrally meaning that Everything about them, the way they think, their, their rationalism, their everything, even their conscience to, to some, to, to the most, for the most part, except maybe regarding the gospel, it's completely tied to this domain of darkness. They're completely in the dark. And to them, there is no light, unless it's fabricated, but how great is your darkness when you think you're in the light? So let that sink in. He cannot, no matter how vigorously he tries, Break the ties that bind him. 
take this one step further. This is precisely why a surrender must occur in the heart and soul of an unbeliever before God will grant them repentance and saving faith. Only God is capable of accomplishing this. This is precisely why a surrender must occur in the heart and soul of an unbeliever before God will grant them repentance and saving faith. Only God is capable of accomplishing this. Now, was that great question that we pondered before I left in Matthew 19, 25 and 26. Remember this at the end of the, this uh, situation. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. That is a massive question. It may sound trivial, but it's not. These people were sitting there saying, then who can be, this is right after Jesus Christ said it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than to get a rich person to him. Who can be saved then? It sounds ridiculous. sounds impossible. It is for man, because man cannot extricate himself from his bonds, from the ties that bind. Only God can do that thing. And he'll only do it for a humble heart. Before I left on vacation, the Spirit postured this very question as arguably the prominent question in the entire gospel consideration. Who can be saved? People consistently, as we've learned here over the years, ask the wrong questions. And Satan and his demons are all too glad to help, too. But in any case, again, the point on the board, this is precisely why a surrender must occur in the heart and soul of an unbeliever before God will grant them repentance and saving faith. Only God is capable of accomplishing this. God accomplishes this work through the supernatural act of salvation. Up here in the board. <clears throat> Only God can grant repentance since man's entire person is bound to the self-life prior to being regenerated. Man is incapable of breaking that fleshly bond. He is powerless to do so. Therefore, God grants repentance a.k.a. also known as the breaking of the fleshly bonds, and also grants the new tie that binds, which is faith in Jesus Christ. I hope you see what the Spirit's saying. That old life, in other words, it's impossible for a person to say, I'm going to grab hold of Jesus and hold on to this. It's impossible. They can't even, with good intention, say, but I have left the old life behind. If they're not saved, that tie still remains. Only God can sever that tie. Does that make sense? Only God can do that work. And that's the importance of what Evangelist Grande spoke of this past week about repentance. You have to present this thing. Because only God can do that thing. God's the one who grants repentance, right? And you'll never turn to Jesus unless you repent first. You cannot sever that thing. 
no matter how much you play act it, to use the Message Bible translation, no matter how much you're playing the part, it's impossible for you to break that tie. Only God can sever it. So, the breaking and tying is impossible for man, and that's what Jesus was describing. Who can be saved then? With God, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. So the breaking and the tying is God's good work. As Evangelist Grande taught on Sunday, all the scripture that points to repentance, and there's a lot of it, amen, Scott? There's a lot of it, is really saying the following, up here on the board. Repentance is an act of God upon a humble heart. It is no more work and no less a grace gift than saving faith. It's not a works. Some people, I think, get cockeyed and they think, that sounds a little bit like works. It's not works. It's a gift from God. How could it be works? If it's a gift from God, if Scripture says God gives you repentance, He grants you repentance. He draws you to Himself. If Christ Himself says, my sheep hear my voice and they come to me, they follow me. But no one's going to follow me unless God calls them first. None of this happens without the supernatural engagement of God. And that includes the ability to let go of the self-life. It's not just the front end like a lot of people present the gospel. There's a whole... It's not just the Jesus part. Repentance is an act of God upon a humble heart. It is no more work and no less a grace gift than saving faith. Concentrate some more, if you weren't already. I know. But look at the good news. We get to kind of like do more review during the week. So that'll be good. Concentrate. <clears throat> when God gives a gift, is it not always perfect? James 1.17 Every gift from heaven is perfect. No shifting shadow. So when God gives a gift, it's always perfect. Is repentance a gift? Yeah. The implication is a bit subtle, but critically important to realize. Reflect on this. If, if, repentance were man's work, then it would surely fail. Isn't that what I taught before I left? Apostasy? A lot of people say, oh, I repent. I believe in Jesus. I've turned my back. Look at how religious I am. If repentance were man's work, surely it will fail. And he might, for example, apostatize. Leave the entire thing behind. However, if repentance is God's work, which it is, then it surely will succeed. Man will bear godly fruit. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 3, 8, Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. The only way that's going to happen is if God supernaturally severed that tie. Man cannot repent on his own. 
Only God can sever that tie. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So, Scott talked an awful lot about the proof of salvation. The Bible instructs people who believe in Christ to make sure they perform the deeds that come with true repentance. For that is the evidence that their faith is genuine. Matthew 3, 7 to 10. Luke 3, 7 to 14. 19, 8 to 9. John 8, 39 to 42. Acts 26, 19 to 21. From John the Baptist to the Lord Jesus Christ to the Apostle Paul and the letters of James and John. There's no shortage of these things, folks. We're going to synthesize, so concentrate a little bit more. First, again, only God can grant repentance since man's entire person is bound to the self-life prior to being regenerated. Man is incapable. Man is incapable of breaking that fleshly bond. He is powerless to do so. Therefore, God grants repentance. That's the breaking of the fleshly bonds. And also grants the new tie that binds, which is faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, the breaking and tying is impossible for man, but nothing is impossible for God. He would have gladly done it for the rich ruler, the one that precipitated the camel and the eye and the needle lesson, if his heart was right. But his heart wasn't right. And the fruit was... I want eternal life. What do I do? But I don't want to let go of this thing. So God never severed it. And he walked away. Second, of course, repentance then is an act of God upon a humble heart. It is no more work and no less a grace gift than saving faith. What the Spirit's really saying is that God cannot ever fail. Therefore, the following logic applies. And this is all what I've got out of uh, mostly Sunday's lesson. It actually hogged up my entire lesson. I had another lesson, and as I started doing the review, these things kept coming out. Just, just thought I'd share. I always ask. God's perfect gift. If a person has been given repentance from God. It means that the fruit they bear will be after its own kind. This doesn't mean a person won't ever sin again. Rather, it means that the new creature will be repulsed by sin, the bad fruit of the old life. So reflect for a moment. Have you ever felt like sin is, you know, like, like right behind you? And you keep trying to Scott's the only one who's nodding his head. He's obviously the sickest person in here. Have you ever felt like sin is like right over your shoulder? I have. I mean, it's kind of like you're in a, trying to like get away, like it's stalking you. Especially when you have a certain propensity for certain types of sin, which we all have. It's like having an awful stalker trying to bring death into your life, like a bad dream. You know those dreams you can't get away from? The guy's like breathing on your neck. That's what sin feels like, at least to me sometimes. Maybe I'm just that much more heinous. 
Maybe not than Scott, obviously. That's why Scripture describes sin at the very beginning of the Bible. The very beginning. In Genesis 4-7, sin is described as crouching at the door and its desire to shuker is for you, but you must master it. In other words, sin's not going to let you alone. It's in that disgusting body of yours, and it's going to haunt you, and it's going to try to chase you down and wear you out. That's why there's so much encouragement in the Word of God. Don't be anxious. Don't grow weary for doing good. Sin's right there, crouching at the door. And it wants to, as I've taught you, Tashuka, master you. It wants to regain its domain, the one that was severed by God. And it's like you have a bitter roommate that all it really wants to do is bring death back into your life. But you have the power to master it. It's a fantastic way to visualize the vestiges of sin which is to say that sin remains with us for as long as we have an unresurrected human body. For an unbeliever, that's all they ever know. However, for a true believer, it's going to feel like even though you've turned your back on sin, repented, it will remain behind your back, quote-unquote, trying to sow death in your life. So the Spirit's just saying, listen, it's not just because God severed that tie doesn't mean there isn't an influence in your life. There's the vestiges, in other words, the leftovers, the remnants. It's in your body. It's like Paul says, who's going to free me from this body of death? Who's going to do this? This is ridiculous. I don't do the things. I do the things. I find out it's a sin in me. It's not even me. It's not certainly not the new self because the new self hates sin. I want to do good, but the sin is crouching at the door. And if I'm weak and I'm tired, that's another reason why, folks, I don't know about you, but you got to do what I just did. you got to take time. I used to think that, you know, have the hero problem. I used to think that, oh, I'll just go for like 17 years without a break. Right? I was, I'm so weak, and the sin's just pouncing and pouncing and pouncing. It's stupid. You have to give, even Jesus Christ stopped, Right? You have to give yourselves time away. You've got to take a break, folks. Because that sin is working behind your back, trying to sow death in your life. A believer will recognize this basic fact because it will be wholly inconsistent with the regenerate nature, also known as the new creature. I taught that at the beginning of the series. If you don't have that, I'm sure all of you looking around, I mean, it's not for me to say, but I have a certain confidence as a shepherd. I mean, if you don't have that, if there's not some repulsion in your soul for sin at some level, you got a problem. Not because I said that, because the Word says that. God the Holy Spirit will convict the person of this truth. And by the way, it's not fair to ask another human being the question, am I saved? It's not fair. It's not fair to ask another human being, am I saved? That's between that person and God. 
It's not fair. It's also not fair to ask another person if you are filled with the Spirit. That, too, is an issue between a person and God. So it's not fair to ask people these questions. These are supernatural things that happen between an individual and the God of the universe. So don't ask it, and don't be a fool and answer it. Give them scripture. Say, the rest is between you and the Lord. I don't know if you're saved. How the heck would I know? I mean, you look like you're saved. You seem like you're saved. You seem like you bear some good fruit. But how the heck would I know? I don't know. How do I know if you're filled? I have no idea because what's good for you might not be good for me. You might give me a scenario and I'm like, that's totally filled. You do that, it sounds good to me. And it's not good for you. Well, how would I know? Then he'd come back at me. You told me I was filled. What happened? What do you mean, what happened? Now I'm in jail. What problem is that? Right? I'd be a fool to answer you in the affirmative. Oh, totally. Look at you. You're totally filled. I can see your countenance. How do I know? Anyways. Third-party speculation on the topic of personal sanctification, whether it's positional or experiential, those issues can prove to be disastrous. Speculate, there's no, look, there's no place for that kind of speculation, at least not in its finality. If you've got some hunches or something like that and you want to give somebody the gospel and make sure they're, you know, they're cool on it or whatever, fine, that's different. But you cannot dogmatically state anything about anyone else's sanctification, whether positional or experiential, because you're not God. I know that's a break for some of you. In any case, I love the way the Spirit worked through Scott regarding this key principle. The issue is the sovereign, holy God of the universe and how he has been offended, not how his gospel might be offensive to man. I love that point. Loved it. It was like in my seat, kind of like gyrating around, loving it. That's what I do. Then I went out for a bike ride, for obvious reasons. The issue is the sovereign, holy God of the universe and how he has been offended. It's crazy how we present the gospel as if God's some beggar, that he's offensive to an unbeliever, that somehow he's got his hand, he's he's begging for their mercy. He's begging them. Oh, he will reach out in grace and mercy, and he will do those things. But we need to remember that he's the sovereign, holy God of the universe. (laughs) And the issue is how he's been offended. Not how all these little, I hate to use the word minions, but you know what I mean, all these little cockroaches are offended by his gospel. Are you kidding me? So there's a strength that the Spirit has been presenting from this pulpit, obviously not exclusively through this vessel even, on that front, on reminding us that He's sovereign and He's holy. And this was part of what He taught as well. The gospel presentation can be tailored. We saw that in the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. It's never the same. Even Jesus took different routes. 
But the Savior cannot be. We may, as the Spirit pointed out on Sunday, have to present the gospel through a variety of ways. Just read Acts, including our example. Now that, for whatever reason, I think disturbs some people. They don't like the, it's a personal responsibility thing. It's, but I don't want that kind of responsibility. Well, too bad. This isn't about you. This is about people being saved. This is about eternal life. It's not about you. Oh, I'm saved, so I'm going to go in my jacuzzi over here, and I'm all set. I don't want to be bothered. Hold on a second. I'm going to go rent a Cessna, and we're going to throw some coins out of the, to- out of the plane in my township, and that'll be it for me for the next year. Too much work to actually interface with people. Too much work, too much confrontation to talk about the gospel on the tennis court or at the gym or at uh, Macy's or Marshall's or wherever women go. So I'm like, I don't shop there. That's just my mother. There may be many ways that we have to present the gospel, including through our example. However, we must present the Savior as He is. In the most dire gospel hacks, Jesus is completely removed. And then there's a continuum. This is something that the world will have you believe. However, up here on the board... A gospel without integrity to the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. Any presentation of the true gospel must unapologetically impose, and yes, that word is the right word, impose a relationship between Christ and an individual. That's right, Jesus Christ wants to get smack dab in front of every individual who he died for. And God the Holy Spirit is going to go, here he is. What say you? The gospel is about a person, folks, if we haven't figured that out yet. A gospel without integrity to the fullness of the person of Jesus Christ is a false gospel. Any presentation of the true gospel must unapologetically impose a relationship between Christ and an individual. You see, facts have no real will of their own. Heck, even lawyers bend them all the time. However, Jesus Christ does have a will. It is God's by definition. And it needs to be related to by human beings. People need to know, what's the will of Jesus Christ? Why did he, on his own volition, lay down his life? Why would another man, read Romans 5, why would a good man lay down his life for another? Why does a good shepherd lay down his life for others? Are those merely facts or are those real personal issues? This is a theme that came out this past week, but it's been coming from this pulpit for years now personal relationships, one of the fundamental reasons that God became man was to personally relate to his creatures, 
and provide a way for his creatures to personally relate to him. Yeah. I mean, he's our high priest. He can sympathize with us. He's our mediator. He humbled himself, became a man, walked among us, bounced babies on his knee, shook hands, kissed people, loved people, wept, um, ate with sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and everybody else and was real. And people preferred his company, unless they were what? Arrogant. One of the fundamental reasons that God became man was to personally relate to his creatures and provide a way for his creatures to personally relate to him. It's a lot easier to dismiss facts about a person than it is to come face to face with them and denounce them to their face. God the Holy Spirit supernaturally introduces the person of Jesus Christ to an unbeliever. And since his ministry is perfect, so is the conviction concerning the gospel, a.k.a. the good news of Jesus Christ. Therefore, when a person is convicted by the Holy Spirit of the true gospel and they say no, they are rejecting a person, not merely facts about him. I got five minutes. One final highlight from Evangelist Grande's lessons that I'd like to share is something that occurred to me while pondering the early church. And just reflect on this. We're going to run out of time, but I'll give you as much as I can. The early church, immediately following the ascension of Jesus Christ, had a Bible, <clears throat> but it was minus the New Testament. I think a lot of people don't remember that. Jesus was gone, and there was no New Testament. Not in written form. Even the four Gospels weren't put into print until a couple of decades after the cross. Yet, knowing that, Jesus himself conveyed the Great Commission. Go to Matthew 28, 18. So Jesus knew that there wasn't what you have. Even this book wasn't written. until somewhere around the 50s, 50 A.D. That's like 20 years later, folks. So I guess the people in that 20-year gap are kind of out of luck, huh? Or there was something else that was going on. Or there was another expectation that Jesus Christ knew himself. But we'll get to that. Matthew 28, 18, And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. How does that work? In the absence of, let's say, the New Testament. How does it work, folks? You know how it works? People got out of their chairs, shut off TiVo, because they had TiVo back then. They got out of their chairs, stopped milking the cows and the goats, dropped their nets, and guess what? You ready for this one? This is way too much work. I don't want to hear it. 
and actually interface and related to other human beings. <gasps> that's like today's day, Sean's generation is like, that's blasphemy. We do it this way. There's no relationships. There's no, you know, we got to get a selfie. That's really me. When you meet him in real life, they're like, anyways. Listen, at least 20 years in the early church. How did Jesus Christ, he didn't say don't go. He didn't say wait 20 years until the canon's completed and all this other thing. He said, no, I want you to go make disciples and then tell them to go make more disciples and then tell them like the, you know, the fanning tree thing. How did he do it? What did he expect? Personal relationships. But I don't like personal relationships. Take it up with him. I'm just teaching what the Bible says. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Sounds like a command, doesn't it? And every command implies your what? Free will. But I'm not good at talking to people. I only have that seven-word vocabulary. What does the Spirit just say? So what? So what? Maybe if you hit up the wrong person with a big vocabulary, they turn off like that. Maybe if you're the person with the, you know, the seven-word vocabulary, they, they love you, and they want to hear everything you have to say. So stop copping out. But I'd rather just pay for a Cessna with the coin thing and throw the coins out. And then I can just sit and watch my programs and be a self-absorbed person like I like. Yeah. So given the fact, let me just close with this, given the fact that the New Testament wasn't even written yet, it means that people couldn't go down to the local bookstore not that there was one, really, and pick up a copy of the Bible and read the New Testament. So I'll, I'll end with this, and I apologize for the eye chart. <clears throat> for many years, two-plus decades for most books, the New Testament was circulating among people, unwritten. The presentation of the gospel was through personal interactions. Relationships were key not written words or tracts. Jesus fully expected that people would be presenting his good news to other people this way. That's what he expected. That's what he did, is it not? He went out and did that thing. Paul, what? what why, why bother? Why didn't he just send a mailman with, instead of going on his missionary journeys? Why not just send a mailman? Why not just... Write something up in his little office. <laughs> little papyrus or something. Send this one. Copy it up, plebes. I am the Apostle Paul. Go send it. No. He got on, on his feet in horrible conditions and went and related to other people. People that, guess what, wanted to kill him. And you think you have it bad, but you don't understand. My, my life is hostile. My workplace is hostile. My friends, it's hostile. Oh, okay. Well, go talk to Paul in heaven and ask him about hostility and how much, how, how tough you had it. But I broke a nail. Only DJ thinks that's funny. Or I got a blister. Or I, I you know. Come on, people. What's more valuable, eternal life or personal, your shyness? What's more valuable? 
the next book in a series, or someone's salvation. So again, for many years, two plus decades for most books, the New Testament was circulating among people unwritten. The presentation of the gospel was through personal interactions. Relationships were key, not written words or tracts. Jesus fully expected that people would be presenting his good news to other people this way. We ran out of time. Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask for your blessings on these things. We ask for traveling mercies as well. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.